Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan with another episode of the Influence Continuum. And I've been waiting to interview my next guest for years. Uh, and I'm so grateful. Christopher Leonard is a business reporter who has been published in the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, uh, Fortune Magazine, Bloomberg, uh, and is the author of three books. Uh, the most recent, Christopher, is The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy, and prior to that, Cokeland, The Secret History of the Coke Industries and Corporate Power in America, which will be the focus of our time together. And prior to that, you wrote The Meat Racket, The Secret Takeover of America's Food Business. And all I can say is that reading Cokeland, and I have the book, I bought the book, I wanted to read right. it and study it, um, this is a contribution to humanity, in my opinion, and especially in this time of global climate crisis, the Kochs have had a, an especial role in, in, in my opinion, of uh, putting out disinformation, distracting, uh, as well as, you know, themselves, as you documented in your book, taking advantage of indigenous resources and, and trying to un undercut government regulations to clean up things. There's so, so many aspects. But um, I, I'm so grateful to you for writing this volume. And so can we start by saying what got you interested in doing a book on, on the Cokes and, and the corporate entity that it is? Yeah, yeah, you bet. And thank you so much for having me on and for the introduction. I really, really appreciate it. It's great to be able to talk about this. And I know I, I suspect we're going to talk a lot about the culture inside Coke and the sort of very rigorously unified culture, which people inside the company describe as a cult. Uh, we don't need to use those words. They use those words. I, I need to use that word because that was what I was thinking as you were describing yeah. Uh, how they operated, but please continue. Well, okay, what drew me to this originally, though, is I'm a business journalist, and I write about big corporations, I write about the economy, I write about our government, and way back in 2011, if not 10, I think about 2011, I realized that Coke Industries as a company was just the perfect vehicle to write about, to explore everything going on in our economy. And there are two key reasons for that. First of all, as an institution, Coke Industries is simply enormous. It's the second largest company in America. And their operations don't just span the entire country, but they cut across industry. So when you're talking about Coke Industries, you're talking about blue-collar manufacturing jobs. You're talking about oil refineries, the energy sector. You're obviously talking about corporate lobbying. They have one of the largest corporate lobbying shops in America. And I realized I could sort of write about everything by writing about this, this company. But the second critical thing was that in this huge debate we're having in this country about the role of government in our uh, economy, Coke Industries and its CEO, Charles Koch, was way over at one side of this argument, pushing this point of view that we need to dramatically limit government, reduce government interference, and let private market forces really dominate, you know, not just our economy, but our entire public life. So that's what got me into it. I just realized it was a great vehicle through which to explore these issues I really cared about. Great. So please start maybe with the history of, uh, of Fred Koch and the John Birch Society, which a lot of people don't understand that historical, you know, genetic lineage. Yes. Okay. So like I said, Koch Industries is now the second biggest privately held company in America. And it used to be run by two people known as the Koch Brothers. Charles and David Koch. David Koch passed away in 2019, but Charles Koch, the current CEO, he's really the driving force behind this corporation. Mm -hmm. Charles Koch has been CEO of Koch Industries since 1967. You know, he, he got the job when Lyndon Johnson was president, and he has really driven and shaped this corporation. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
But as you mentioned, Charles didn't start the company. His dad, Fred Koch, started the right. company. So we really need to turn the clock back to like 1930 when this, um, you know, industrialist investor named Fred Koch started this firm, really focused on oil refining and energy transportation. And, and this guy, Fred Koch, was, you know, a business person, an entrepreneur, and a vehement conservative. I mean, the word conservative doesn't even really capture the point of view, I don't think. Uh, you know, maybe the best way to kind of illuminate this is what you just mentioned, is that this guy, Fred Koch, was one of the founding members of the so-called John Birch Society. Not so-called, that's the name, right? Right. Um, and I wasn't familiar with that before I started this book, but you know, the Birch Society was a wild organization that was founded to be a completely secret organization. And the belief system that animated the Birch Society was that communist forces had infiltrated our entire federal government. And so, I mean, like, including up to, like, Dwight Eisenhower, mm -hmm. they accused of being a communist. Mm -hmm. and, and so the vision of the Birch Society and Fred Koch wasn't just what we might call, you know, Reaganite or Richard Nixon conservatism, where you seek to kind of limit federal government and lower taxes. I mean, it was a view that these government programs like the New Deal, like uh, later on Medicare, Medicaid, although they didn't play a role in it, but let's just look at the New Deal back when the Birch Society formed, that, that this was literally a communist plot to to create tyranny and authoritarianism in America. So that's not the argument that like, you know, FDR's New Deal was ineffective or taxes were too high. It was that literally it was an evil plot by the communist government. So that's the political culture of the Koch household when Charles Koch was growing up. Yeah, and I think they were part of a group of other very wealthy elites that didn't like the idea of taking the dollar off the gold standard in order to finance the New Deal, if I'm remembering my history correctly. That sounds accurate, yes. So um, please proceed and just talk about the, well, you talked about the second largest company, but talk about how much influence uh, this this organization is doing. And I, I uh, mentioned that before I hit record, that I just posted a blog about the free speech campaign of Charles Koch on campuses, uh, trying to say that we shouldn't censor any speech, including hate speech, including disinformation speech. Um, so that they're very involved with politics, it seems, uh, and not helping to shore up democratic institutions, but really uh, limiting government, right? Well, yeah. And, and I mean, you, you touch on so many interesting points there, which first of all, okay, I, I got to talk a little bit about Charles Koch's political theories and his political Please. culture. I mean, okay. So we know where the patriarch Fred Koch was on this. It's a vehement anti-communist. And it's important that from the time Charles Koch, who's CEO now, from the time he was a kid, it was always understood that politics and economics are intertwined and, and that, uh, you know, it's not enough to just be a CEO. You also have to work to influence the governing systems of the United States and the governing systems in which your company operates. And so it, it's not an overstatement to say that from the very beginning, Charles Koch was very politically oriented. And it's not just that he considered himself a CEO, kind of minding his own business and refining oil. The, the political struggle, if you will, or the, or the seek to influence our, our, our government was there from the get-go. Right. But, okay, so what's so interesting is Fred Koch was a vehement anti-communist. Charles Koch is a really bright guy who gets two um, PhD degrees in engineering from MIT, including a PhD degree in nuclear engineering. So he, he's an extremely intellectual, extremely bright guy. And he brings this sort of different strand of DNA into the political thinking, which is the writings of these Austrian economists like von Mises and Friedrich Hayek, you know, the road to serfdom. 
And I guess I would kind of describe it as a more like uh, refined or genteel kind of conservatism. It's very theory based. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not as focused on on communism as much. But I, I really want to get to a point you made about the the role of democratic institutions. Okay, for, for starting in in the '60s, Charles Koch was building this group of intellectuals that were. Austrian economists, and I, and I think the best way to kind of describe this to people is just as super hardcore libertarians. I mean, it is this belief that every government program, no matter how well-intentioned, is essentially going to do more harm than good. Mm. Just full stop, you know? That, for example, Friedrich Hayek wrote a lot about uh, the the Austrian government's rent control policies, which were meant to help people rent houses affordably, but he 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 claimed that it you know put the real estate market into ruin and actually made property more expensive and and all these uh, terrible third order side effects. That's Charles Koch's view. Now let's fast forward a little bit to the 1970s. Uh, Charles Koch starts to work with this hardcore libertarian economist named uh, Murray Rothbard. Okay. And now we get this theory that not only are government programs ultimately really destructive, but that democracy itself is really dangerous. Murray Rothbard talked about, and, and you know, I'm sure, I don't know if you've ever talked to Nancy McLean, who wrote a book uh, called Democracy in Chains. She really documents this really well in her book as well. But it's this idea among these people that, if you give the populace the right to set government policy through voting, then the populace can essentially vote to, quote unquote, in the words of Murray Rothbard, steal money from business leaders who actually earn it. And and so in this way, they see democracy as the enemy of good in the sense that it's like mob rule or that, you know, programs like the, the Great Society programs like Medicare, Medicaid, is basically a way of the people voting to take the money from millionaires and put it in their own pockets. And and so, I, you know, I think it's very important to, to emphasize that point that within this framework, within this very, very, very libertarian and conservative view of the world, democracy itself can be destructive and bad and it needs to be limited. And that the the, the primary role of the government in this view is to simply like maintain property rights, hmm. you know, maintain property rights through contract and let the market do all the work of allocating resources rather than the people or democratic institutions. Right. Yeah. So um, I've written about Ayn Rand and objectivism and selfishness is good and altruism is evil. And to me, that resonates highly with this this mindset of you know social darwinism we're we're wealthy we're powerful we deserve it and everyone else you know hell with them i mean listen von mises as an austrian economist wrote an incredible book called on human action i think that's the exact title and i mean it's 700 pages but one of the thing von mises talks about is that there are really special classes of people who generate wealth. Uh, you know, they're sort of above everybody else, these entrepreneurs, these heroes of the marketplace, and they're the ones with the great ideas and the innovation that, you know, in Ayn Rand's view, uh, what did she, I haven't read Ayn Rand, okay, full full disclosure, but she talks about the guy, the architect, right? Isn't it John Galt or something? I believe so. Yeah, so that that's the theory is, you know, these sort of the super class of innovators creates wealth and that we must ensure that the populace doesn't seek to steal it through government action. Now, if I could hasten to add as a business reporter, um, you know, the greatest economic period in American history was without question. You look at the numbers, 1933 to 1980 under the New Deal. And uh, the New Deal structures of law that limited the power of corporations, that limited the power of Wall Street, that empowered labor unions. And what it did was 
you know, created public investments in the public good. Think of the highway system, think of the universities. It gave uh, workers a chance to bargain for their own wages. But the key thing here is that it is it is workers and consumers that drive over 70% of our economic value in America. Right. And so that's a, they, yeah, that's a the different middle view class, of what right? Well. That thing called the middle class. Yeah. That thing called the middle class, in fact, is what drives economic growth. Yeah. Right. So can we come back to, uh, I got off on a tangent with uh, my, I'll, I'll, I'll take responsibility, but talk about the cor- corporate culture of Cokes and all of their, their programs and how they would recruit and indoctrinate people to join their corporation. Thought that was fascinating. It is one of the most fascinating parts of this company and something I had no clue about going into it. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, senior executives and retired executives at Coke Industries really do use the word cult when they describe the company. Hmm. And it, 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 once again, it all traces back to Charles Koch. Uh, he is an extremely intellectual guy who reads a lot. And from the earliest days when he joined his dad's company and then took it over, uh, when Charles Koch was in his 30s, he took over the company, his early 30s, when his dad died of a heart attack. Charles Koch always wanted to instill his own blueprint on the firm. And in, in, in fact, it's not coincidental, like one of Charles Koch's first jobs was as a management consultant um, with Boston Consulting Group. And and when he joined Koch, his dad's company, he, he really wanted to lay out the blueprint for how to manage the thing because he felt like managing the company is, is the most important part. It, that's the most important secret ingredient in prosperity is managing all the pieces together. And so over decades, he created this philosophy and, and this kind of management playbook that he has called market-based management. And I mean, it's, it's literally a codified system mm-hmm. that, that has its own vocabulary. It has 10 guiding principles. It has five dimensions. Uh, you, when you work at Coke Industries, and I mean, Charles Koch has written this in black and white, you either fully embrace market-based management 100% or you're out. Mm -hmm. It's, there's no either, or he's, he used the phrase total conversion in his 2000 book, uh, the science of success. Mm -hmm. I've never seen another company that does that. I mean, Walmart has their own very identified corporate culture. Jack Welch is famous at GE for having something but to have it codified and specified to the degree that it is at Coke, in, in my understanding, is totally unique in corporate America. So, I mean, quickly, let's just say that, you know, Steve, let's say you get hired at, at Coke Industries uh, tomorrow. They would probably hire you in their public affairs group is what I would guess since, you know, you're a communicator and, and that kind of thing. So what would happen when you got a job? No matter where you lived, you will fly to Coke headquarters in Wichita, Kansas, and and you're going to spend, I think it's between three to five days in an auditorium at Coke headquarters, which, by the way, is this like towering, <laughs> opaque, black glass and limestone building. It's really kind of amazing to look at. It, lo- it looks like a black cube. And you're going to spend three to five days in an auditorium there with fellow new hires, and you're going to go through these seminars, learning market-based management. You're going to do training exercises. You're going to learn the vocabulary. You're going to learn the principles. You're going to get the printed material about how this thing works. And then when you go to the office after that, you're going to see that the, the free coffee cups in the cafeteria have the 10 principles of market-based management printed on them. The, the screensavers in the conference rooms, when they click on, they're going to go to the 10 principles on the screen. It, it's going to be reinforced at work every single day. And, and everybody you work with is going to use this vocabulary of market-based management. They're going to use terms like mental model, point of view, humility, these words that take on a, a, a deep meaning. It, 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 it's not too much to say. It's like a secret language of people who work at Coke that when you really understand 
their meaning of the word humility, the specific definition within market-based management, you're going to start speaking their language, you're going to start using their language, and it really is an inculcation process by which after five years, this is the way you think and talk, for sure. Right. If I may say, so I was recruited into a front group of the Moonies in 1974, and I got deprogrammed after a near-fatal van crash, and then my family begged me to talk to ex-members, and I was so sure I wasn't brainwashed or in a cult that I wanted to prove it to them. And part of what helped me get out of the Moonies was learning about Chinese communist brainwashing and the work of Robert J. Lifton, who wrote the seminal book in 1961, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism. And he outlines eight criteria that any environment may be judged as a brainwashing environment. And one of those is loaded language which is thought-terminating cliches that are pregnant with meaning to true believers, but the outside are like, what is that? Uh, but he outlines milieu control or environmental control, the sacred science, trying to say it, it explains everything of importance, mystical manipulation, taking information about a person and manipulating experiences to make it feel like the group is omniscient, uh, you know, taking information, the cult of confession, the dispensing of it. So these eight criteria, I did, wound up doing my doctoral dissertation, the first scientific uh, quantitative study on what I call the bite model of mind control, behavior control, information control, thought control, and emotional control. And I have lists of sub-variables. And along the influence continuum, I say there's ethical groups and ethical influence where there's informed consent, where you have the right to question and use critical judgment, where you uh, are encouraged to use your conscience, where you're free to leave without fear or threats. And the, this unethical, authoritarian, really destructive cult side and so when I was reading your book, I was just like, ding, 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 ding. So for my listeners who are more familiar with my model, I just want to say that um, this really is about dependence and obedience to the corporation and the goals and values as outlined by Charles Koch and the company. And if you want to stay a part of it, you have to follow all the rules. You have to report people if they are breaking any of the rules. And kind of the ends justify the means because we're the, so important and everyone else is less important who are outsiders. And then if anyone's a whistleblower, they're a traitor uh, and, uh, you know, that kind of notion that if you leave, there's no legitimacy to your beingness if you leave. So um, it just, it, 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 and then I'll just comment uh, about how the principles are everywhere. You know, the brain can get indoctrinated through repetition, you know, and, and reinforced over and over and over again. And a certain type of clothing is okay, and other types are not okay. And um, but but uh, yeah, so people have to study the manual. They go through this, you know, orientation slash indoctrination, and then depending on how good they are at conforming and what they can bring to the corporation, they'll get promoted. And if not then they're they're uh, they're demoted or 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 kicked out. And I guess I also one of the things that really struck me was just how much they were into fossil fuels and 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 lying to indigenous people whose whose oil they were taking and not giving proper compensation uh, and 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 whenever regulators came or if there was a, a leak or pollution or whatever they would 
you know, use the ends justify the means to uh, to to not do the responsible thing and such. So I know I'm 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 going on and on more. You're the expert on this, but the environmental disinformation campaigns that I believe the Coke uh, 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 industries have been doing. Uh, mirror the tobacco industry's efforts to say, no, we don't cause cancer. You know, there's no global climate crisis. And it turns out that my former cult, the Washington Times Foundation, was at the forefront of climate change science denial for 50 years. So there's like a, a circle back for me personally at my upset uh, at my former call. Wow. Okay. Let's talk about that. But everything you just said is, is, is activating so much in my brain. Mm. I've actually, cause, cause your book cult of Trump, it was Simon and Schuster, right? Yep. That published that book. Yep. Yeah. I remember that when it came out and, and you and I talked a little bit at, at that time. And this is one question I've actually always had for you because when, when I talk about the cultish nature of market-based management. You know, I literally, I'm not an expert. I'm just a reporter. I, and I, I take pride in, you know, my greatest ability is to simply write down what I see with my own two eyes. Right. Like that's it. Yep. And so that's what I did. With, that's what I did with Coke. But everything you just said tracks in the sense that there's, there's a chapter in the middle of the book about a woman at a refinery. Her name was Heather Farragher. And she was a literal whistle, whistleblower to the EPA and reported um, egregious pollution, egregious pollution into a waterway from an oil refinery. And, and that exact thing you just talked about of casting her as the heretic is, is the word I'd use. Like she hasn't absorbed the principles, you know, she's violating the principles. Her character is in question. And she wasn't technically fired because there was so much attention but she was driven out. Okay. But the question I've always had for you as a guy, I don't study cults, but I always thought one of the defining attributes of a cult is that if you try to leave, you get punished. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the way it works at Coke Industries, it, it's almost the opposite direction, which is that uh, if you leave you're just gone. We don't care. We're done talking to you. You're free to go. But it's it's that you don't get to be part of this thing anymore. Mm -hmm. And and almost almost the pressure inside the company is, oh my God, please don't make me leave. Yeah. You know? Because it's special. So it's to, you're part of the chosen. You're part of the elite. And if you leave, you'll never have this opportunity again. And your life will never have this great... Uh, connection to this incredible entity. Yes. And, and that thing you talked about, about looking down on everyone else, I, I feel like there is a lot of truth to that in, in the sense of, um, you know, in this organization, I mean, these are the people, they literally run the machinery of modern society. Mm. They keep the lights on. They 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 run the oil refineries that create our energy that allow us to drive to work. They build the building materials that that make our buildings, and, and I think that there is this sense that we are the elect, we are the select, we we are at Coke, um, mm -hmm. we are smarter than everybody else, we out trade everybody else, and what's so interesting is that the financial success of the company reinforces that view mm -hmm. the 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 intense amount of money they make reinforces that point of view i've i only got to interview charles coke one time and it was in his office that in his headquarters i say his headquarters i mean it is accurate like and uh he's been in this office since the 90s and i just realized you know when this guy comes to work every day the compound, by the way, the headquarters it literally has a wall around it since 2014. I mean, it is a, a walled island that is very prosperous and very large. And it's just sort of like this giant physical manifestation of a verdict 
that like you are correct. Mm. Look at all this money. Look at all the success. Right. Your view really is correct, and that that feeds the thing. Um, I don't know. So, so I guess what you're saying, and I'm sorry to be talking so much. This is just activating so. No, many memories, I'm but... I'm I'm thrilled to meet you, and and to answer your question about the cult of Trump book, what I realized, aside from the fact that Trump was a malignant narcissist, which is kind of the stereotypical cult leader profile of of this this you know entitled grandiosity transactional relationships uh lack of empathy combined with the uh I'm above the law cuz I'm special uh lying is fine if it's serving the higher purpose um, uh, the threats, the harassment, the sadism, the, the the vengeance, the inability to trust. So I started with that when my book agent said, do, do this book. But then I learned there are actual cults in the cult of Trump. And they, their leaders have their followers doing the bidding uh, to the service of this this. Uh, MAGA movement, for lack of a better way of saying it, that, that they're going to, to transform America. And there are all these different actors. So there's the religious dominionists, the people who claim to speak to God, who are convinced that Trump won the 2020 election because God said so. And, and the, uh, there's like 40 million Americans, and this, they, they speak in tongues and cast out demons, presumably and do faith healing, but they control behavior, information, thoughts, and emotions and make their followers so afraid of the outside world that Satan may invade them if they doubt the leader <laughs> or the doctrine. So they're all then the, the then the NRA was in there, the Jewish right I put in there. I put all these different entities that seem to me including Russia and Putin, I might add, was at the top of chapter seven as, uh, as puppet masters. Um, but um, you know, coming back to, to, to what the subject of your book, um, the, 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 the influence direct and not, didn't they, didn't they grant different um, entities, think tanks and other um Weren't they involved with funding a lot of other front organizations, for lack of a better way of saying them? Yes. And and I went off on a digression, too. Like, you know, when you're talking about funding these external entities and working to influence our government, the, the primary area where they're working is environmental law, and it is around global warming. Mm. And And I think at the end of the day, when... This story is measured in 50 years and 100 years, and historians are looking back. I do think Charles Koch will be primarily remembered for his impact on climate change mm -hmm. policy. I think it's going to have a larger impact than his entire corporate life. Um, and there is something specific I want to talk about in terms of like, the cultish, if you will, pressures on, on people who work there. But as, as to step back for a second, the core business of Coke Industries is refining fossil fuels, mm -hmm. natural gas, oil, coal. It's fundamental to their business. And if we put a price on carbon emissions it would limit their profits uh, dramatically. I mean, it could punch a hole in the whole business model of what they're running. The firm is wildly diversified, that is true, but at least half of their money every year comes from doing nothing except refining and burning fossil fuels. And, and I really measured it that if you took away that part of the business or suffocated it, you know, it, it would cost this family that still owns Coke Industries trillions of dollars over over the years, over mm -hmm. the decades. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the stakes could not be higher. They cannot accept climate change uh, legislation or a price put on carbon emissions. Economically, it's just uh, a, a huge blow to them. And, and so you've got that 
commercial financial self-interest on the table. And then you've also got this point of view, if you will, uh, to use their own market-based management jargon, right? right. You've, you've got this mentality that government should not interfere in markets. Yeah, Taxes are bad. Rules are bad. And so there's this natural uh, opposition, this natural antagonism toward regulating climate change. So Coke, Charles Coke and Coke Industries, they've been there since the get-go. I mean, uh, since the 80s, when George H.W. Bush was talking about using the so-called White House effect to fight the greenhouse effect. Mm. The Republicans wanted to do something about this, and the science was clear. The science remains clear and is inarguable that pumping gigatons of heat, you know, greenhouse gases into the sky is warming the planet. It's not up for debate. What is up for debate is specific models of how fast it might act and all that. But Charles Koch and his his group of think tanks and lobbyists have been working since 1989, at least, to cast doubt exactly as you said, the same way that tobacco companies do raising any any scientific study that might have a margin of error or raise a question. They say, hey, well, in this whole thing, just too complicated to understand. And I don't think the scientists really know what they're talking about. Let's wait. Let's put it off. They've been doing that for decades. And as I write about toward the end of the book, their, their biggest threat came with the Obama presidency. And if we remember in 2008, Obama was talking about doing something about climate change, but so was his Republican opponent, John McCain, mm -hmm. talked about limiting green. I mean, and, and the plan that the Democrats tried to impose to uh, regulate carbon emissions in 2009 and 10 was a Republican plan from the state of Massachusetts mm. called a cap and trade plan. Mm. Uh, it was a Romney thing, you know, so. It's fascinating. I mean, there was this bipartisan understanding that we need to do something about this in a way. I say bipartisan in a way, but Koch stepped in and helped inject into the Tea Party movement this notion that regulating greenhouse gases very much along the lines of the Birch Society, that this was the camel's nose pushing into the tent of authoritarianism and tyranny. They were like using the same kind of language as the communist takeover of trying to regulate greenhouse gases. Right. Uh, yeah. So they politicized it dramatically. So coming back to my expertise, when you're in a, a group that has an ideology that's totalistic and says we're we're special and we know more than everyone else and is very simplistic in the sense of us versus them, good versus evil um black versus white etc um and you've been and then there's a notion in social psychology called sunk cost fallacy where you've invested your behavior in this ideology for so many years uh then then we have this recipe and and so many people are like don't the fossil fuel people understand that this is our habitat? This is the planet that we all live on and that we're going to be destroying it as a habitable thing? When you have this kind of mindset, you do thought stopping. You block the doubts. You, 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 you see things in a very limited way of... We have to fight the government, so it's a game, and we need to outplay it. And but to their own demise, and 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 it's and it is suicidal to continue this. And I keep hearing different fossil fuel uh, corporate heads going, "Yeah, we're gonna amp it up now. We're gonna do more fracking." But it's like, "Hello, don't you see the weather?" Don't you see these thousand-year events that are happening weekly around the world that are devastating? This is going to affect all of us. Um, and, and they're just stuck in this black and white, all or nothing, we know best mindset. And the science is really, really clear. 
And and as I said, I, I was actually reading a book by David Lipsky on 50 years of science, uh, climate science denial. And he, yeah, he fights yeah, my, yeah. he cites my former cult as having all these science conferences with people who were hired propagandists to say, well, it's not exactly, you know, clear that's and it's like yeah it really is clear but they're putting out this information my god okay let me respond to that with one like detail story please and then maybe kind of a bigger picture because you everything you're talking about is so true and so fascinating um and 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 it it's stunning to be honest mm. i mean the position we're in so okay let, let me start you know, we talk about the theory, uh, or not the theory, but kind of like the the market based management culture right. of Coke Industries. What's so interesting is that on paper, what this what this theory says is like, hey, we're an open, challengeable system. You know, if you've got a problem with your boss or you see something going wrong, bring it up, and and we're all going to go where the best evidence leads us, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I profiled this guy that worked for Coke in Washington, D.C., and he was a compliance lawyer, meaning he's one of the lawyers they hire to make sure that they're comporting with EPA rules and all the rest of it. The guy's name's David Hoffman. Okay. Okay. So in 09, Obama comes in, they start talking about regulating greenhouse gases, and David Hoffman makes the mistake of taking market-based management seriously. And he's like, okay, let's look at the evidence. We're warming the globe. Um, and, and by the way, I put in the book a two-page description of climate science. It's not complicated. We've known for over a century that carbon traps heat. We know we're putting gigatons of carbon into the air every day. It's, and I'm sorry, that might be annually. I do apologize. But we're putting gigatons of carbon into the sky. Not complicated. The only complicated part is like what year stuff starts to happen. Okay. Anyway, this guy, David Hoffman, started an internal study inside Coke to say, what would it look like if we adapted to a limited carbon model as a business? Yeah. What if we embraced capitalist change? And look, the headline is he got driven out of the company. He got driven out of the company. High-performing, super-bright lawyer but he violated the unspoken ideology. He violated the culture in acknowledging that global warming is real and that there would be a pathway for Coke to deal with it, as opposed to the lobbying shop, the people who did get promoted, who run it today, deny the science and talk about an antagonistic, confrontating, confrontational approach to the government. Here's what really interests me, though. Backing away from that anecdote, I have interviewed former retired Coke executives who are incredibly bright guys. I mean, when they start talking about trading oils futures and building these learning systems that Coke used to trade in financial markets, it would blow your mind. Mm. These guys are brilliant. And they also, at the same time, believe climate change is a hoax that was cooked up by a liberal axis of university professors and government officials who needed to come up with a narrative to uh, like bludgeon the population and keep them under control after the fall of communism. Like wild stuff. Yep. Wild stuff. And they believe it. And, and, and it's, it's something I've never been able to get my head around that you can have so much of your life be evidence-based and scientific and then this whole other part be so ideologically driven. Um, and, you know, they say the same thing about me. Oh, my God, poor Chris. He seems like a decent guy, but he's so brainwashed by George Soros and the uh, Me too. I'm brainwashed by George Soros, according to the right <laughs> wing. Like, but you, you're giving yeah. the 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 essence of ideological totalism. We know the truth, 
and the hell with facts, the hell with science, the hell with anything else, and the thought stopping that blocks the possibility of stepping out of your mental model, entering into a different mental model, as you were just describing, and saying, what does the evidence say? And let's, what can we do to test this out? And um, they really are stuck in a mind control cult from uh, speaking as an occult expert. That's how it, how it read to me when I read your book. It's amazing. Um, I don't understand it. Again, I don't mean to like cop out, but I do feel like my job is to write about what people are saying, how they think and what they're doing. And, uh, so just it's to tell you a little bit more, Chris, um, and for yeah. our listeners, so I'm, I was raised Jewish, I'm Jewish, uh, and I was educated about the Holocaust. I went to Israel, I became a Mooney. Oh, I should say I didn't like Richard Nixon, I voted for McGovern. I get into the Moonies, I think the Holocaust was justified because the Jews didn't accept Jesus. And I'm fasting for three days for Richard Nixon during Watergate because God wants him to be president. Now, I was an extra honor student before the Moonies, but they, they hacked my mind and my ability to think for myself. So I was thinking from the cult locus of control, the way they look at reality, instead of my conscience, my body, my life experience. And, but the, the good news is people can get out of it, but it is a mental model that one needs to see it first in a different group. And what helped me was looking at Chinese communist brainwashing, because the Moonies said they were evil. So I was open to learning about the eight criteria of, of Lifton, and then they all applied to the Moonies. And I was like, wait a minute, we're God, they're Satan, the same brainwashing model. Hmm. And it, one more step that got me out of the mindset was realizing Moon was a liar, even though I thought he was the Messiah, the greatest man in human history and sinless, I was given a speech by Moon by the deprogrammers who are ex-Moonies, and they said, what do you think of this, Steve? And I read it, and he was flattering congressmen and senators, and he was said, I'm surprised that anyone could believe that me, Reverend Moon, a Korean, could brainwash American people. I know your answer is no, my answer is no, too. I was in the room with Moon, a hundred times, and he didn't think Americans were special. The Koreans were the master race. And it, we and my first negative thought in two and a half years was like, he's a liar. And as soon as I allowed that thought, it penetrated the indoctrination. And it was like, wait a minute, everything that I'm doing is based on the belief that I'm doing things for God and to save humanity on earth. And now I realize this is not and this is the, this is the basis of my 47 years and four books that I've written that this is a mind hack uh, people can bright people can be brainwashed fascinating let me if i could what what you're making me think about is bringing it back to i hate to bring it to a small thing but politics because you know it's you know Climate change is an enormous, um, impossible to to overstate the importance and urgency of this problem as it faces all of humanity. Right, and, and our political system is stuck in dysfunction and paralysis to a large degree. Although the so-called Investment uh, Reduction Act is actually an enormous climate bill that that puts at least tens of billions of dollars into renewable energy. So it's not like nothing is Well, happening. that was the Biden the, administration, the thing, right? That put that in? Exactly. That, right. that was the Biden administration and the, the brief window of time when the Democrats controlled both chambers. But the thing about climate change is it can only be mediated or understood by people through a narrative. Mm-hmm. It, it's a it's a big picture. It's not an abstract concept, but it is a very large concept. 
and it's it, it it's a narrative that ties together the weather events we see, the record-breaking summers, the death toll. But you have to absorb a narrative to understand the urgency of the problem. And then we've got these competing narratives out there saying the government's lying to you. They want to control your life. They want to take over. Um, this is a giant hoax. And and it's it's perplexing to me. Like, I can understand how you went through a personal journey you talk about allowing that that one thought in your mind. This guy's a liar. Um, that can kind of make the whole thing fall apart. I just don't know how that can happen on a big picture politically for a society, for example, that's trying to like tackle an enormous problem. I think um, that, I think it's you know, doable, but it's really psychoeducation. It's just like explaining the difference between ethical influence and unethical influence, explaining it with examples like pimps and traffickers. How do they find people, groom them, and make them sex slaves or labor trafficking? If you can understand BITE, behavior, information, thought, and emotional control as used in another context, then it's part of the foundation to then a ask questions in a respectful way about your own belief system, especially if you got converted into something like a QAnon or you hated Trump and then you think he's God's chosen man like King Cyrus. Getting people to start reality testing, and it's doable, but you also need to understand Putin's major money is from oil and fossil fuels. Middle Eastern countries, their main source of revenue and power are fossil fuels. So it's not just American corporate fossil fuel industries, but it's a global thing. And there is disinformation warfare. I come back to the tobacco industry that knew it was causing cancer for decades, kept lying, hired people, hired doctors to smoke cigarettes and talk about how relaxing it is. But they knew that they were doing harm because they wanted to make money. Okay. I have a question for you really quickly. Do you think that there's something about American society today that makes us more susceptible to these kinds of rigid belief systems or, or, or cultish things like QAnon? Or is this something that's sort of always been with us and we're just seeing modern iterations? Like it used to happen through pamphlets and now it's happening on Twitter. So I, I, when I wrote The Cult of Trump, I made a conscious decision to kind of chart uh, from Edward Bernays' 1928 book, Propaganda, and, and Bernays was Freud's nephew. He was the first person to apply psychology to business and to politics. He did the first presidential campaign, and his major frame, I was going to say contribution, but it's a major frame, is you don't sell the item, you sell the need for the item and then you offer the item or the person, mm. et cetera. And so- Oh my God, dude, wow. So, <laughs> so Adam Curtis did a beautiful documentary called The Century of the Self, all about the advertising industry and how they were creating the need for products that nobody needed, but they believed that they would be better people, they would be, you know, more sexually, uh, uh, you know, attractive to the opposites, whatever. And this science has gotten more and more sophisticated with neuroscience and social psychology research. Uh, as, as you say, now it's on, on platforms where they have 5,000 data points on every voting American, and they know every like and dislike, and they have profiles on everybody, and they can nudge people behind the scenes to whatever the, you know, the, whoever's paying them or whatever ideology is happening behind the scenes. So that's where you know, my expertise uh, applies that we, we're humans and we need to realize we need each other. 
this whole notion that selfishness is good or if someone has a billion dollars, they're a better human being than you are, that's not a value-based assumption. Being being uh, humble and 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 honest and and responsible and caring about the community, we need to get these values back as core values for our survival and the planet's survival. And America has a unique role right now to stand up against authoritarian dictators that want to take over other countries, like we see with Putin right now. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, so f I was talking way more than I had planned with you, but um, all I can say is um, this book is, it really opened my eyes to corporate cults. And uh, I can say that a, a colleague of mine who studies leadership in Scotland has written journal articles on Enron as a corporate cult, Theranos as a corporate cult. And again, these, these models of manipulating people's thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and information, uh, can it does work. In the end, it doesn't. And, you know, we're coming to the end of the Influence Continuum podcast with you this time, Chris. But um, I, I, I want to invite you to, to, you know, say some wrap-up thoughts about um, your, your research on the Koch corporate empire, its influence on politics, on environment you've already covered, and any any other um, thoughts that you'd like to share with my listeners? Um, no, I really enjoyed this conversation, and thank you so much for your work. It's fascinating. And I guess, you know, as a reporter covering this stuff, one of the big take-home points to me is how important the, the narratives are of, of the people in general. I mean, um, lobbies in Washington, and I hate to use the phrase special interests. I mean, what could be a more overused phrase than that? But they put hundreds of millions of dollars into very sophisticated campaigns to control the narrative in, in DC. Yep. And it's just so important for people to think independently, have those kind of challenging thoughts you talked about exactly, where you're really looking at the evidence, you're questioning your own assumptions. And I mean, that's one of the take home points I'm walking away with so much today is just how important that kind of independent thinking is and, and how orchestrated the efforts are to shape what we think. Yeah. yeah. And I'll just have to add, Putin spent $100 million over 10 years on, on PR in Washington, D.C. Mm. Uh, so there's been a lot of Russian influence um, uh, too that we need to consider in terms of and also lobbyists and 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 politicians. Christopher Leonard, Coke Land: The Secret History of Coke Industries and Corporate Power in America. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it for today's episode of the Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast is by Nasser Malik. To keep up to date with me and happenings that I think are important, please visit my website at freedomofmind.com. There you'll find in-depth articles about cults, mind control, and other relevant topics. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you grasp the complex web of undue influence. I have also launched a new nine-hour online course for anyone interested in a deep dive into issues related to recovering from undue influence in all forms. While this course is designed for clinicians, everyone can benefit.
If you're a former member, I congratulate you for your bravery and invite you to use the hashtag IGOTOUT and join our online community at IGOTOUT.org. Remember, love is stronger than mind control. And thanks for listening.